Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Laurian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. Let's get started. joining me this week. It's a huge help when you like, rate, and subscribe to Between the Creations wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook for news about upcoming episodes. You can find out more about the podcast, submit topics you'd like me to cover on an episode, or even ask me to speak at your event at laurianhook.com. Well, welcome everyone to this week's episode of Between the Creations. It's, uh, man, every week is so exciting to be with you guys. I am really, really excited. Like, I I know I say this every week, I always am, but I truly am excited to be here um, with Dr. Carmen Joy Imes. She has written a really, really great book that I can't wait to recommend to y'all, but let me tell you guys a little bit about her. She is an associate professor of Old Testament and also the program coordinator for Bible and Theology. Um, at, is it Prairie University? Is it University? No, it's Prairie College. Prairie College. And you guys are in Canada, which is awesome. And I love, I love me some Canadians, but I don't think you're a native born Canadian if I, if I remember correctly. But anyways, let me, let me tell you guys a little bit more about her and then she can uh, jump in here. She has a, a BA in Bible and Theology with a minor in New Testament Greek. She also has a master's in biblical studies from Gordon Conwell. And then she also has a PhD in biblical theology with an emphasis on the Old Testament from Wheaton College. And uh, you have kids and a husband. So feel free to introduce yourself uh, with any other details you would like. But welcome, welcome, welcome. It's really good to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on your podcast. Uh, all that stuff you said was true. Um, I My kids are now at the age when I'm thinking less about uh, parenting uh, in the small stuff. My youngest is now 12, and my oldest is uh, almost 20, and she's launched. So, um, so we're beginning to, like, look ahead to empty nesting. You know, in just a handful of years, we'll be done with the kids at home stage. Um, and we've been in Canada. This is our fourth year at Prairie College. And you mentioned that I'm not a native-born Canadian, but I am a dual citizen, which I found out when I applied for the job here at Prairie. So my dad's from Canada. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, it was a very, very unexpected surprise. I came up for the campus interview and came away with dual citizenship. That's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, you, so you have done a lot of work in the Old Testament, uh, much like your, your kind of bio that I, that I mentioned says, um, your dissertation dealt with uh, a lot of themes that we see in Exodus and the law and this idea of bearing the name of God. And what does that mean for God's people? And you took your, um, dissertation, this really high level academic writing, and you pared it down and made it accessible for the average lay person, just, you know, normal, normal people like, like most of us are. And you, you wrote this book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Um, and you publish it with IVP, which is awesome. And I will put this book in the show notes so that you guys can grab it um, when you, after you listen to the episode. Um, but so we're gonna talk about the book today. And we're just gonna talk about some different aspects of it and let you all learn from Carmen and uh, kind of learn more about a little bit of Old Testament information, which is always, um, as you guys know, if you're a regular listener, you know, it's near and dear to my heart. So um, one of the things, obviously, the name of the book, the name of your work, Bearing God's Name, could you just kind of 
explain that generally for people who haven't listened to or haven't listened, who haven't read the book yet. Um, why is it important that we talk about this idea of bearing God's name and what does that even mean? Yeah, so this came straight out of my dissertation work. My whole dissertation is really about one verse in the Ten Commandments, and that's the command not to take the Lord's name in vain, which I believe has been vastly misunderstood. And so I did a full exploration of it from every possible angle. I did word studies, looking at possible parallels in other languages or other texts, um, other parallel passages in the Bible, looked at metaphor theory, and uh, did all kinds of digging to see if I could really hone in on what is this passage actually saying. And I became convinced that the command is not telling us not to say God's name in a particular way but is much broader than that, that it it's, doesn't have to do with speech in particular, but that it has to do with the fact that at Sinai, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is choosing the Israelites as his own people. And it's as though he puts his name on them like this invisible tattoo or an invisible mark that says they belong to him. And then the command is tied to that that idea, and it's telling them not to misrepresent him, not to carry his name in a way that is going to misrepresent his character to the nations. So I I come to that by especially looking closely at what happens at Sinai, and in particular looking at the high priest and the high priest's role as somebody who represents the tribes to God and represents God to the tribes. And we're told that he wears this really elaborate uniform And part of his uniform is this pouch on his chest with 12 gemstones. And there's one gemstone for each of the 12 tribes. And they're inscribed with the name of that tribe. And so it says, and so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel before Yahweh when he goes in and out of the tabernacle. And it uses the same phrase there that we see in the name command, which is literally you shall not carry or bear the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And so it's the same phrase to bear names in both places. And so I look at all the reasons why we might want to read these together. Um, For example, in Exodus 19, right before we get the Ten Commandments, God tells the people, you are going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they are set apart in a way similar to the way that the priests are set apart for God's service. So it isn't, I don't think it's random for us to be looking at the high priest to find out what the people are supposed to do, what their vocation is. Uh, So I argue that God's telling the people not to misrepresent him. And then um, in the second book, the the book for lay people, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, I'm, I'm tracing that theme of representing God, bearing God's name through the entire canon and seeing how the rest of scripture continues to develop that theme. Once you see it, it is everywhere throughout the Bible. And it's it becomes kind of a unifying theme that defines the people of God and their vocation to represent God. So it's really fun, fun and exciting stuff. Absolutely. Yes. I, I loved the book. I loved how accessible it was, but also challenging in some ways of, of hey, look at this a little bit differently, or let's look at this concept in a, in a new way. And so I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, and this idea of us bearing God's name and, and quite honestly, of being able to finally kind of collectively hopefully move past the idea that the commandment to not um, bear, to not use the name of God in vain or however we want to translate it is primarily about cursing or primarily about something like that. Um, 
it's more about how are we representing, how are we um, acting as God's regents and God's agents and that kingdom yes. of priests in the and, world. And, uh, um, and it's much more... Uh, I was go just going to clarify for anyone who's now wondering if it's okay to swear. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I don't recommend that we start <laughs> using God's name flippantly just because the command's not about that. I think um, that would fall within what does it look like to represent God well would be to honor his name. But that we can't limit it to that. Yeah, and it's so much more comprehensive when we look at it that way than, oh, just don't say these words together in a sentence out of anger. But instead, it actually affects and has implications for my entire life and how I how I am in the world. It's so much more invitational, I think, even at that point, which is, I think, really encouraging and, and hopeful in some ways that God is inviting us into this mission in the world. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's just fantastic. Um, I'm going to mention a quote, uh, from the book. Um, you talk a little bit about how, uh, sometimes we might have a, a misconstruction. And I think, I think as Protestants, even, uh, in Westerners, especially, we have a hard time with the law. We are like, the law is silly and it's old and we don't need it anymore. And I've even had people go so far as to say, we don't really need to preach out of the old Testament that much. And it's like, ah, no, no, no. Um, but you talk about here I, on page 35, if I don't know if you have it, I'll just read it here. It says, um, God, you're talking about God it says he saved them first. And then he gave them the gift that goes with salvation instructions on how to live as free men and women. Um, and I, I love this idea, and you you really weave it throughout the story, that the law, and uh, including the Decalogue, including the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, is not this weight that's, that's put on the people. It's not this burden. It's more of a, here's how to live freely in my society that I'm building. Can you kind of elaborate on that at all for us? Yeah, I think... One of our problems is that when we talk about the Ten Commandments or when we have them in art, they are like snipped out of their literary context and they're just there they are on the wall. Do not do this. Do not do that. And when we read them that way, we miss the context of freedom and deliverance that precedes the giving of the law. Moses does not show up in Egypt with the two tablets and tell the people, hey, guys, I can get you out of here. Just Sign on the dotted line that you'll do these things and then God will save you. No, he rescues them first before they've done anything to deserve it. And so I think that's really vital for us to to grab onto is to see the law as a gift given to a people already delivered. And if we if we recognize their mission to represent God among the nations, then we also see that the law itself is missional. This isn't, again, about earning salvation or earning God's favor. This is, I'm setting you apart for a special project. A project started way back with Abraham when God told Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. And now we're going we're gonna to begin to flesh out what does it look like to live as God's treasured people so that you can be the channel of blessing to the nations. So the law is not a ball and chain. It's something that they're being invited into this mission of God to bring blessing to the nations. If, if we could just grab hold of that, it would really transform the way we read the Old Testament. Absolutely. Oh, man, I could not agree more with that. I 
this just this overarching narrative structure that we get from the Old Testament and even gets pulled into the New Testament of mm-hmm. us being invited into the mission and life of God, us being invited yes. to participate in this kingdom um, that yes. God is building and that's that's moving um, is so pervasive. And yet it's also so easy to miss um, if we're not mm-hmm. reading with those eyes. And if, we're, and if we are reading yep. with a bent towards the Old Testament or the law being more of a burden or being more of, of kind yeah. of a ball and chain. And it's not, it's actually more freedom, I think, than we have realized um, yes. in, in different, you know, sermons that we've heard or maybe stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One, one thing I love is um, Daniel Block, who was my doctoral mentor, talks about the Ten Commandments as the bill of other people's rights. Oh, that's good. Daniel, Daniel not, Daniel's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, So it's not about protecting my turf, but it's about constraining my power so that I don't take advantage of other people. So if you're a if you're a homeowner, if if you own a household and you've got all this household staff, they get to rest on the Sabbath, not just you. So your job is not just to stop and rest on the Sabbath, but but your wife and your children and your servants and your animals even get to rest on the Sabbath. So if you kind of imagine these laws being distributed to male heads of households in ancient Israel, each one of them is is definitely being constrained in how they exercise their influence and control over their households. Um, They can't just take whatever they want, and they have to respect other people's right to life, right to property, right to a good reputation. Um, so when if we all really leaned into this idea of protecting the rights of our neighbor, we would be a different kind of society. Yeah, and I mean, we even see this in, in the great Christ hymn, right, where Jesus has, has come to be amongst us as our equal, and he's mm-hmm. laid aside those rights that he has. Yes. And so yes. if, like, why are we expecting our, our lives to be any different than than the life of, of the person that we love and serve, right? And we just, I think we mm-hmm. lose sight of that. So in, in, we see this in the Old Testament, just with exactly what you just said. So I think that's really mm-hmm. helpful, hopefully, for people and insightful of how this is a different way maybe of approaching and reading some of these commands and and this mm-hmm. this Old Testament language, um, it's again it's mm-hmm. invitational, it's freeing, it's um, promoting yeah. this community of God's people. Um, so yeah, yes. it's that's so insightful um, and really really helpful. If we if we turn to the New Testament, I mean, so many people think that the New Testament does away with Old Testament law because Christ died on the cross, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. But if you read any of Paul's letters, you'll see that he always follows a pattern where the first half of the letter is giving exposition and the second half gives exhortation. So here's the first half is, here's what's true about you and what God's done on your behalf. The second half is, here's how you need to live. And he gives all kinds of instructions about how to live well as the people of God. So Paul is not doing away with law. He's, he's not saying, it doesn't matter how you live. Jesus saved you. He's, he's giving tons of specific instructions about how to practically live into your new identity as a follower of Jesus. So I think Paul and Moses are pulling the same cart. They're, in the, they're going in the yeah. same direction. And you you mentioned this later in the book, I think— um, I, I think you say something along the lines of the the main like pushback biblically to what I'm trying to propose comes from Hebrews chapter eight, mm-hmm. where it talks about, mm-hmm. you know, the law, the, the law is old and, and old things are it's passing away and it'll eventually be done away with or whatever. But you make this great, great point 
and you say, if you read carefully, if you read Hebrews carefully, especially the chapters surrounding mm-hmm. chapter eight, what is being done away with is the sacrificial system. It's not yes. the spirit of the law. It's not the mm-hmm. law like you just described of, you know, looking mm-hmm. out for others' welfare and, and curbing our own rights. That's not what's being done away mm-hmm. with. Instead, it's the sacrificial right. system. It's the blood and guts, quite <clears throat> literally, of mm-hmm. how we are, how we maintain communion with God, right? You know, incorrect, incorrectly, um, because Jesus yes. is taking care of it of that. Jesus as the great high priest, Jesus as the better everything, literally in Hebrews. But that's a great, great point. Um, Do you want to elaborate on that any more for for listeners? Um, Just to say, I'm teaching Torah this term, and we just finished Leviticus today. And so we've been looking at the sacrificial laws this week. And I did just stop and talk with my students about this. Like, Jesus didn't come to die for us because the sacrifices didn't work. The sacrifices in Leviticus worked. If you read the first seven chapters as the instructions are being given, the repeated refrain is, and they shall be forgiven, and they shall be forgiven, and they shall be forgiven. You follow these steps, God is God is graciously making a way to forgive people. So it's not, the problem is not that it didn't work. The problem is that it didn't have a way of removing the the impetus to sin itself. So it took care of sin effectively, but it had to keep doing it over and over and over exactly. again. So Jesus comes along as the more perfect sacrifice because once for all, he can give himself for us and cleanse us and then give us the spirit who empowers us to stop sinning so that we don't have to continually need this sacrifice. Yeah, that's and again to back to Hebrews. That's what the author of Hebrews talks about: the clean, clearing of the conscience. Right, this this yes. old sacrificial system was unable to clear the conscience, the inner, like yes. even even our like the psyche, even of why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it could deal with the impurities that built up on the altars and built up on on people right. like physically. It just was unable to get inside um, and, yes. and take care of some of that. And so, yeah. Again, this is great help in us reframing our understanding of the law and our reframing of the understanding Mm -hmm. of of even just Torah in general, I think. Um, So Mm -hmm. to go back to to specifically to, to the commandments. Um, yeah. you, I, and this is something that I think people will find really interesting. And I would recommend you guys getting Carmen's book to learn more about this. You have an interesting way of numbering the commandments mm-hmm. and of, of, mm-hmm. you know, we say there's 10 and you say there's 10 as well, but the way you get right. to 10 is a little bit different. Um, yeah. and I, yeah, so I would love for you just to kind of talk about that a little bit so people could, um, could jump in on that. I know I dog-eared page 47 here where you, you combine a few different things. Um, but could you just kind of offer some, some commentary on that? Yeah. So this is something I stumbled upon. I I had no idea there was a controversy about how to, how to count to 10. (laughs) Um, but it's actually not quite clear in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, uh, where the 10 are. And so our English Bibles usually indent them for us to kind of show us where they think, where the translators think the the 10 are. But there are different traditions, um, you know, Reformed and Catholic and Jewish uh, traditions count them differently. So basically the, the maybe unique thing about my approach, and I'm not the very first person to do this, but I argue for it, is I would take Exodus 20 verses 2 through 6 as one command. So beginning with the statement, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. I count that as part of the first command. And then that what we usually divide into two is you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make a graven image. 
And we usually, most traditions count those as two separate commands, but I believe they're one command. And the reason is because um, there's, a, there's a grammatical reason and a practical reason for it. Um, in verse 5, it's, this is in the, in the image, um, not making idols part of the passage. Verse 5 says, you must not bow down to them or worship them. And it's plural. But the command was singular. You must not make an image singular. So it has to be pointing back to some plural antecedent beforehand. And the, if you, you have to go back all the way to verse 3 to get your plural, you must have no other gods which if you've already separated that off as a different command, you might miss that. But I think um, for that grammatical reason, I would bind those two together. And then for the very practical reason that if you're in the ancient Near East and you're going to worship another god, you must have an idol of that god to worship. And if you are in the ancient Near East and you have an idol, it's so that you can worship it. Like there's no point in having an idol if you're not going to worship that god. Yeah. There's no way to worship without an idol. So I – we. In our minds, these are two things, but for an ancient person, this would be one thing. So I take that as the first command, and that makes the name command number two. Uh, you shall not bear God's name in vain. And I think the significance, the theological significance of this is really interesting because then that leaves us with the first two commands as kind of a heading for all the other commands. Number one, I'm your God, only me. Number two, you are my people. You represent me. And, and that's the covenant formula in a nutshell, which we see throughout the prophets, um, where the prophets will, will want to reiterate, deliver God's message to reiterate or reinvigorate the covenant by saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's command number one and command number two. I'm yours and you're mine. That's how they connect with each other. So, so for listeners who are now lost in the weeds counting and trying to figure out how <laughs> I still come up with 10, um, I'll just briefly say that the last, what we usually consider number 10 is not coveting, um, but it actually repeats the verb twice. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, etc. And I would split, I would just split those into two. So coveting your neighbor's house is one, and then coveting your neighbor's wife, et cetera, is, is the last one. And one thing that's interesting, again, back to Daniel Block's work, he points out that in Deuteronomy, those last two are flipped around so that um, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife gets its own line item. And then the last one is your neighbor's house and servants and ox and donkey and everything else that belongs to your neighbor. So he detects here a humanitarian impulse where between Sinai and the plains of Moab, where he's reiterating the Ten Commandments before the people go into the land with the next generation, he, he it's as though Moses has already detected there could be a problem here. Men could begin to treat their wives as property. And he he wants to, to ensure that that's not the way that, that people read the commands. And so he flips them around. So yeah. he, I, I think Dr. Block is probably right about that. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And it is so interesting. We we miss little things like that sometimes because we um, sometimes in certain, def, you know, denominations or certain groups or different ways of approaching the scriptures, we read in such a way that it, it all just flows together and it's it's just mm-hmm. natural. And this and we miss little things like that where, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, this this is something has changed like this is yeah. different. Um, so that's a yeah. really great point. If if yeah. readers want a little homework to do, that's kind of a fun fun little project. 
try to lay out the text of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, just the Ten Commandments in each passage. Lay them out line by line so that you can see exactly what changes. When Moses is reiterating it the second time, there are several changes that are interesting. Nothing like of huge theological consequence, but um, but it's that slowing down and paying attention and seeing what we would otherwise miss. Yeah, yeah. So there's your homework, listeners. Go, go do that. It's it's worth it's worth your time. Um, I've so, never given homework on a podcast before, but this will be the this first. will be the first. It's great. It's great. <laughs> I'm I'm here for it. Um, so let's let's fast forward to the New Testament a little bit because okay. Jesus and we've talked about Paul. We talked about Hebrews, but Jesus has a lot to say about the law. He actually has mm-hmm. some thoughts on it, and he does kind of reframes it in some some ways. It seems, and I'm sure that many of the Jews around him at times were going, "Hold up, hold up! You can't you can't change what Moses wrote down and what what other people wrote mm-hmm. down." Um, Mm -hmm. Um, But you talk about this a little bit in the book. Specifically, I'm looking at page 147 and then 148, but kind of towards the top of 147, let me me read this quote um, for the listeners here. You say, uh, the Sermon on the Mount shows that Jesus understands himself as the one who possesses authority to interpret the law and give fresh revelation. His Sabbath interchange portrays him as the Lord of the Sabbath, one greater than the temple with power to heal. If his divine identity is still veiled to some, it won't be for much longer. The mountain of transfiguration makes it obvious. And then flipping to page 148, you talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, Jesus is up on the mountain and, and, you know, Peter's there and some other people are there and we got Moses and Elijah appearing. And then kind of in the middle of the page, you say this, the divine voice puts Peter in his place and says, your job is to listen to Jesus, not to try to manage my glory. Listen to them from Matthew 17 echoes the passage from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, where the people people are told to pay attention to the prophet like Moses who will arise. Jesus inherits the legacy of the prophets who reveal God's word to the people of faith. But this particular prophet is even greater than Moses. The glory is his own. Um, And I love how you what you wrote Mm -hmm. about Jesus here and how Jesus is kind of reframing the law for mm-hmm. for these people. Um, can you kind of talk mm-hmm. about that some for us and give, give us a little bit more information and help us out here? Sure. I, I think it's really common for people who want to be savvy readers of the New Testament and take into consideration the Old Testament to read Matthew and think, oh, Jesus is a new Moses. Yeah. Look at look at him. He's coming at he he goes up on a mountain and he sits down and he teaches and he teaches about the law. So it's just like Moses did. And when we say that Jesus is the new Moses, we miss this this subtle but important difference. Moses never says, I tell you this. He always says, thus says Yahweh. And when Jesus comes along, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And that's the authority that people are just blown away by. Like he, he's speaking, he's not referring back to some greater power or greater authority to, to authorize what he teaches. He is himself the ground of his own teaching. So So in Matthew 5, we see Jesus beginning to talk about the law and their perception of the law. And I feel like one verse that we sure don't spend enough time on is verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is all about seeing God's mission that was carried out by the law, the, the, the missional dimension of God's law, he is, he is there to fulfill it. So he shows up as a Torah-obedient Jew because he recognizes 
God's mission to bring blessing to the nations and to bring light to the nations. And he realizes this is how to do it. So, so even when Jesus prays, when he teaches his disciple how to pr- disciples how to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As though he recognizes their job is to bear God's name with honor, and they have failed to do that. And so God's name has been profaned among the nations. And so he's praying for the re-sanctification of God's name, which only happens in the Bible in one way. And that is when the people of God live rightly and they they live faithfully to the covenant. So I think Jesus is is continually calling people back to that, but he's doing so from from the the his teaching is coming right from himself, not from some other source. Yeah, isn't and isn't that what one of the things that David accuses Goliath of? I mean, obviously he's not expecting Goliath to bear God's name, but doesn't he say something about you're blaspheming the name of of God or something along those lines? I I can't I I'm va- I'm having like these recollections of like Sunday school coming back to me, and I think that's one yeah, of the yeah, things that David accuses Goliath of. Um, not again, not expecting him to be necessarily a bearer of God's name as, as a pagan, right? But he's like, you can't right. come in here and blaspheme the name or, or misrepresent the name of our God. Um, and, and David has some really strong things to say about that, and then he acts on it. Um, but yeah, he I'm does. having like these he flashbacks said, to Sunday school. <laughs> yeah, so for it's First Samuel 17, and I remember this as a kid because I had a we had a book on tape that was like a dramatized version of this story. And this was my favorite part um, because in in the ancient Near East, if they had a, a war between two two peoples, it was always divine warfare. It was always a contest to see whose God was greater. And even um, in this particular case where you have single combat between two champions, the idea is you don't need everybody to fight. You can figure out whose God is strongest by just having two people fight and they're fighting on behalf of their gods. Um, so... So Goliath has been dissing Yahweh and his people by calling out to them every day. And so David says to him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So it it isn't that Goliath is bearing God's name. He's not a covenant member, but he's, um, he's challenging God's honor. And David says, I'm coming I'm coming to you in the name of Yahweh. And of course he wins, which yeah. is the definitive proof that Yahweh is greater than the God of the Philistines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah. And again, we begin to see, just like you said earlier, this, this narrative of accurately representing the name of Yahweh yes. and how yes. important that is for God's people throughout the scriptures. And we see it, you know, goodness gracious, they don't do it well during the exile and during, you know, we have all the prophets mm-hmm. and they're really failing mm-hmm. at this. And then Jesus even calls out people in different ways and, and kind of mm-hmm. reinstitutes this and says, Hey, look, we need, this is, we got to get, ba- we got to get back on track here. Um, yep. And it's, it's just, it's throughout the entire narrative. Um, it really, it is. really is. Um, it is. And, and once you see this idea about name bearing, you'll see that it, that, the, that this is how the prophets frame Israel's disobedience. Ezekiel 36 the big concern is when the people went into exile, they profaned God's name because everybody saw them go into exile and they concluded from that, logically, Yahweh must not be very powerful because these are Yahweh's people. But look, they're having to go out of his land like they were defeated in battle. Therefore, Yahweh must not be strong. Um, but Second Kings 17 says very clearly why they're going into exile. It's because they violated the covenant. And so Yahweh 
is compelled to, to let this punishment fall on them, this consequence of their disobedience, but it's sending the wrong message to the nations. Right. And so he says, I've got to do something about this PR problem because now people think I'm not powerful. So, yes. so Ezekiel's announcing like God is going to bring the people back to the land, not because they deserve it, not because they've cleaned up their act, but because his name is, is in jeopardy. Mm. And then Jesus says, hallowed be your name. And it's like he's he's saying, we still have a PR problem. Let's do something about it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's really helpful. That's a great illustration. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me switch gears a little bit. So I tweeted sure. out, this is like a month or so ago, I think right when you and I scheduled this interview, and yeah. I asked people, I was like, what questions do you have uh, for her about the book? And some of them were very similar mm-hmm. to things that I've asked you already. But one individual, um, he asked for your opinion on the documentary hypothesis, which is not really super related to anything we've been talking about and we might go down a little bit of a bible nerd rabbit hole here for a second but hold on listeners because i think there's something for all of us to learn here so and that's all the context he offered he just said i would like her take on it you know briefly or whatever Mm -hmm. so i would love to just set that question before you and uh see see what comes of it okay well first we should probably define what that is so that listeners can can uh, track with the conversation so the documentary hypothesis is a hypothesis that was formulated that says that the books that the texts that we have in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, did not just were not just written wholesale uh, like by one author, but that they they show evidence of being the combination of different sources that have been interwoven together to tell this big story. So. Um, classic documentary hypothesis people, um, divide them into J, E, D, and P. J is the Yahwist. Um, e is the Elohist. Um, so, so the Yahwist is, would be, um, sections that reflect a knowledge of Yahweh's name. The Elohist is a, is a writer who prefers to use the name Elohim for God rather than Yahweh. And then D is the Deuteronomist responsible for most of Deuteronomy. And then P is the priestly source, um, that that handles the priestly text. So this is the classic theory. Fifty years ago, you would not have been able to find an evangelical scholar who bought into the documentary hypothesis because people viewed it as a way of um, undermining the authority or inspiration of Scripture, um, as if to say this wasn't inspired by God. Somebody put it together later and stitched all this stuff together. Um, I so I am not trained as a documentarian. Um, I do, I have not been trained in source criticism. I don't actually find it that interesting, but I, um, but I don't like, so that that's not to like, I, I suppose the risk would be, I say, I don't like it just because I don't know how to do it. Um, it's and just not there your is cup that of tea. possibility. It's not my cup of tea. Um, so, so my emphasis has been looking at the final form of the text. We have the Torah in this particular form. Someone put it together in this form, whether it was one person who wrote the whole thing or a group of people who wrote the whole thing all at once, or whether it was the combination of various sources. Here's what we have. What does this final text say to us? So that's been my approach. I have been criticized. Um, There was a scathing critique of my dissertation that was released in German. Uh, Uh, Of course. Of course it was. Right, right after so my it was extra scathing, came out, it was extra scathing with German long sentences. Um, because 
this particular reviewer said I hadn't paid any attention to sources and the Decalogue or Ten Commandments was is attributed normally to a different source than the priestly text that is responsible for what Aaron wears. And so the fact that I didn't recognize that these two came from different sources kind of undermined my thesis. Well, I it's true I didn't pay attention to that and maybe that would have been fruitful to do so. But to me, somebody at some point in history put these two texts alongside each other. And to me, that suggests that they're meant to be read together and they're meant to inform how we, we read each one. They, each text informs the other one. So um, so I would say I don't pay a lot of attention to sources. I'm not trained in it. However, I would not say that if someone says their sources, they're completely um, doing violence to the text. Sure. There does seem to be evidence of various styles. Um, there there are seem to be seams between things where it's like, oh well, we've already had an introduction to that character. Why do we why are we getting another introduction? Or or for example, in Exodus, we have Moses' father-in-law called by two different names and yeah. it's, it's a little bit hard to reconcile like why is he being called by two different names so and there are various possible solutions to that but I wouldn't rule out completely the possibility that there were different sources that were at some point combined to me that does not undermine the idea of of the inspiration and authority yeah. of scripture because I feel like why couldn't God use various people of course of course and and then why couldn't he inspire scribes to weave them together in this beautiful tapestry that we have but I just have more fun looking at the whole tapestry than trying yeah. to pull the threads apart <laughs> I'm I think I'm with you on on that actually that position towards the, the criticism and, and all of that with with the, mm-hmm. those things but thank you for kind of answering that in in an accessible way for us um I, I appreciate sure. it and I hope that that w- maybe some of you just got really in- intrigued and you can go down a rabbit hole of your own research uh, in the future um it's There's plenty it's all to there read on the topic <laughs> there is lots to read and if um, apparently if you want to learn German as well they have some thoughts on this in earnest so <laughs> yes this has um, been sort of the pinnacle of German scholarship of um, yeah you know, camping out in this in this area. And I think there's some interest to it. So many Christians assume um, that Moses wrote the Torah. And if you don't say that Moses wrote the Torah, then somehow you're disagreeing with scripture itself. But if you read the Torah carefully, it never ascribes authorship to anyone. Um, Moses is said to write a few things down. He writes down about the battle against Amalek in Exodus 17. He writes down, well, he brings the tablets with the Decalogue on them, and then he writes down chapters 23 to 20, sorry, 21 to 23 of Exodus, the covenant code. Um, he probably writes down the tabernacle instructions. So we're told things that he writes. So I, I wouldn't doubt that he could write, but I don't need to assume from that that he wrote it all. And that it was he wrote all the whole, him. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Now that's, the New Testament good. does refer back to it as the law of Moses. And I would see that as like shorthand for this, this body of work, which features him largely. And he does do some of the writing. So I don't feel yeah, like he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> he's a very he's big kind of deal. a big deal, right? <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Well, let me, let me wrap us up here with, with one final question. I, I try to ask this of, of most of my guests, especially my, my Bible scholar guests, um, especially someone like yourself who has done this rigorous academic work, but but seems to, especially through this book, really have a heart for lay people in the church for, mm-hmm. for us to be able to grasp this on, on a deeper level. Um, mm-hmm. What are maybe one thing, maybe two things um, that you wish or that you would like to have communicated more 
about the Bible, about um, Christian scholarship and academia back to lay people mm. in the church? Maybe yeah. something that you've you've always are having to kind of correct with your students even. You're like, okay, I know you've heard it, is mm-hmm. that this is the way it is forever, but actually let's do a little bit more research yeah. and, and realize this. Do you have one or two of those things that you wish maybe more people realized mm. about the Bible or about um, Christianity that you want to share? Oh, yes, there are a few. Um, (laughs) We've already talked about the law as a gift, a gracious gift. So I won't talk, I won't um, beat that drum again. Um, But I will say there's a a more New Testament problem that I see like super, super common. If I could just take care of one false thing that we keep saying, this would be the thing. And that is this idea that salvation is asking Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. There's all sorts of problems with this sort of yes. truncated view of salvation. Um, even the title of your podcast tells me you you know there's a whole lot more than than that because it oh I love this between topic. the this creations yeah between the creations implies there's another creation coming. What we're yeah. not we're not looking ahead to a time when we're like disembodied souls floating around on clouds, um, but actually God is making all things new including our physical bodies and this physical world, will be restored to his creation intent. Therefore, our, our, our uh, t- proclamation of salvation should not be something about that happens to our inner self after we die, but it's about being invited to be participates, participants in the kingdom of God now and in the community of faith now. Um, so I, I'm trying to root out the word heaven from my vocabulary, not because the Bible never uses the word heaven, but because it does not use heaven in the way we tend to do so. Amen. I don't think we're going <laughs> to heaven when we die, at least not permanently. Um, if, if we go to heaven, it's temporary. The, our future is the new creation. So if people could grab yes. onto that and just pay closer attention to how the Bible talks about our future, that's probably the biggest, biggest thing that I wish I could fix. Oh man, yes, yes to all of that. I that is one of the thing, one of my top three. Every single time I, I talk about the, these types of questions or these types of common, mm-hmm. maybe kind of misunderstandings or you know mis misfires, even I guess um, yes. that's one of my top three. So thank you for that. That was so rich yeah. and so great. Um, and I think that's a great place to kind of wrap things up and, and end. Uh, that, I mean, that's kind of a call to action in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. I think, for, mm-hmm. for most of us. Thank you so much, Carmen, for your time. Uh, it's been so good to have you and to get to know you a little bit through this. So I'm sure the listeners yeah, will. thanks for having me. I'm sure the listeners were blessed. And y'all, I will put uh, Carmen's Twitter information and, the, and a link to the book in the, the show notes for this. So by all means, go over there, check it out, grab yourself a copy of the book, and uh, you will be blessed for having done so. And uh, make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast. If you haven't left a comment yet, that'd be awesome. And, you know, rate it, do all of those things. It's really, really helpful. And I will be back next week with another awesome, awesome guest. Bye.